Somebody asked me how I was doing, and I said, well, I'm both emotionally eviscerated and nervous about my talk. So that's where I'm starting from. Uh, I thought Sarah's talk was, uh, I mean, that was powerful. I want to be a college student at Rice, if that could happen, um, to be under her ministry. Uh, and then Josh came up and said, you know, he didn't want to follow her, and I thought he was maybe going to be something a little bit lighter. Uh, but, it, but it wasn't. Um, uh, I will tell you that I will not be sharing any embarrassing puberty stories. Um, Sarah, I think, took, the, took that one, uh, took the bullet for the rest of us. Um, I did start high school at 12, though, so that was great. Yeah, I'm still, still working on that one. Uh, all right. So I am uh, an Episcopal priest in Waco, Texas, which means my church looks like it's Catholic. The music sounds like it's medieval English, and the pews are filled with Baptists. <laughs> So I think that maybe qualifies me to speak here. I don't know. Uh, maybe not, but I'm here. Uh, I'm a repeat offender, a frequent flyer. I spoke here in 2015 and 2016. Uh, skipped 2017 due to some legal issues that may or may not have had to do with the fire festival in the Bahamas. <laughs> Jaw rule was framed. Returned in 2018, and, and now here we are. Uh, so, and uh, I just want to give a big thank you to Matt McGill and to Beth McGill and all the people that have worked really hard to pull this thing together. Uh, it's just months and months. And I'm the president of the board of Mockingbird, on which I serve with uh, Drew and, of course, uh, Sarah Condon's on the board and um, other wonderful folks. Uh, and uh, we're just so amazed at what uh, Matt and Beth have done here and Tyler uh, and the way they keep doing it year after year. Uh, it's just incredible. It's a, it's a way God has shown his grace to us. Certainly when Mockingbird was started in New York 12 years ago, uh, we didn't have Tyler uh, on our map. But here we are again and again, and we love being here. So, so thank you to all of you who have come and volunteered and just been part of this, uh, whether from the beginning or just for the first time. Uh, all right. So... On to the talk here. Uh, I'm going to talk about the big problem we have, at least one of them. I'm going to talk a little bit about Merle Haggard. Yes. I'm going to talk, yeah, thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about Elaine uh, from Seinfeld, Elaine Bennis, uh, and uh, an Outback Steakhouse. So that's kind of roughly where we're going. Uh, Jesus will be involved as well. So the problem. I don't know if you have noticed... But as it turns out, a lot of people don't like a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, like a lot. They feel very strongly about it. Uh, here, uh, you probably have your own categories of people you don't like. Here are some of mine. Uh, there's the unsolicited lawn care advice giver. Hey, uh, thanks for inviting me to this barbecue. It's really great. I love your place. By the way, I noticed some brown patches on your lawn. Give me back that shiner. Uh, there's the religious relative. Uh, for your birthday, I got you this uh, daily study Bible, and I'm uh, even going to call you every week just to see what you're learning. True story. Thankfully, her intention was uh, better than her follow-through. And then there's the slow left lane driver. Now we're connecting with where you live. 
whose conservation of fossil fuels combined with the even greater sin of their ignorance of my importance combined to produce a full volcanic eruption of rage in my sweet, sweet Christian heart. So those are all people that give me reasons not to like them, but then there's this other category of people that you just don't like for no reason. Uh, this next clip is from season two, episode 12 of Seinfeld, and I included this just as a, a tip of the hat to David Zoll, uh, who uh, preached one of the most, or spoke, gave one of the most amazing talks uh, on Seinfeld last year, and uh, it's, it's sort of his bread and butter. It's his comfort zone. It's his safe and happy place. So uh, this is from an episode called The Bus Boy, and uh, Elaine has been excited because she has a friend from Seattle, Ed, uh, a new love interest in her life who's decided to come visit her for a week in New York. Uh, and a few days into the visit, we see this. Ed's downstairs. Can I have the car keys? No, hello? You got any aspirin? Hello? Now look it. You guarantee me this car is going to get me to the airport tomorrow, no problem? Guarantee? Hey, it's a car. Because if there's even slightest chance of any problem at all, I don't want to take it. Because if I don't get this guy on a plane to Seattle and out of my life, I'm going to kill him and anyone who tries to stop me. So did you have a nice week together? I heard a little ping in the car the last time. What was that ping? There's no ping. Why are you so wacky? Jerry, you cannot imagine how much I hate this guy. And he hasn't even done anything. It's this He's a wonderful guy, but I hate his guts. <laughs> He's a wonderful guy, but I hate his guts. There are people that you avoid in church who have never done anything to you, but they just produce some sort of reaction uh, in you. Uh, it doesn't happen to me, but I've had heard confessions from people, and I know this is true. And it's not just that we don't like other people individually. We get creative. We get ambitious. We build empires of not liking whole groups. Uh, this, this is what we do. First, um, and I'll use the, we all do this, but I will, I'll use the I here. So I put people in groups. Let's pick, for example, people who like river dance. <laughs> this is the dancing where you're not allowed to use anything above your waist. And I decide I don't like the whole group. And then I find other people who also don't like that group. That's step two. And then I becomes us. All of us non-likers of Riverdance likers. And now it's suddenly us versus them. And this, this gives uh, root. Riverdance is the source of the problem, I'm, I'm convinced. This us versus them mentality that we all seem to have. And it could be Riverdance. Obviously, that's not that bad. It's kind of bad, but it's not that bad. Um, <laughs> We pick things um, just as arbitrary to divide ourselves into us versus them. Uh, and we do it every day. Uh, actually, it's probably not Riverdance's fault. I think the blame is at the feet of the outlaw, Merle Haggard. Or maybe not. Who knows? I don't think he invented it. But he, uh, he had a role to play in this. So um, Merle was um, uh, a child that grew up poor in California. His, uh, his house was a converted boxcar, 
uh, a gifted kid, distracted often in school. His teacher said he could do great things if he would just focus. When his dad died at age nine, it was obviously a huge blow, and he started running away at 10. Now, by the time he got into his 20s, he had been arrested or in some sort of facility run by the state 17 times. Burglary, stealing cars, assault. And then uh, he was put into San Quentin when he was 21, San Quentin Prison, because he was such a flight risk. And while he was there, he witnessed two things. Uh, he saw Johnny Cash perform in that prison, and he watched his good friend Rabbit walk the long walk to his execution. And when, he, when Merle was released at age 23, he looked at those two options, and he decided he liked Johnny Cash's option better than Rabbit's option. And he became a country singer and turned his life around. And six years later, in 1969, after getting out of prison, uh, he, he released um, a song, Oki from Muskogee. The song became an instant classic. Anyone know that song? All right, well, if you don't, get ready to live. <laughs> he wrote the song uh, being sort of proud as being somebody, and, you know, as I said, he's from California. The song is about being from Oklahoma, which he's not. His family had some roots back there, but... Um, uh, in the song, he's comparing uh, the way of life of people in Muskogee to the way of life of people, uh, particularly in this case, those elitist, hippie, uh, free thinkers in San Francisco or wherever uh, they may be. And, um, and so he sings this song, and much to his surprise, it was a huge hit. I mean, it, it, it tapped into this deep uh, uh, sense that people seem to have, and you'll see this in the clip, People just go nuts at this chorus uh, because people felt like there's those people out there and there's us over here and we're really different and we're, we're proud to be us and not them. So this is uh, what us versus them looked like in 1969. Roll a clip. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. We like living right, being free. We don't make a party out of loving. We like holding hands and pitching woo. We don't let our hair like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee Place where even squares can have a ball We still Still the biggest thrill of all Leather boots are still in style For manly footwear Beads and Roman sandals Won't be seen Football's still the roughest thing On campus 
And the kids here still respect the college dean Catch, you kind of messed up the words a little bit there at the end. Uh, very humanizing for Merle there. I, I think it's so interesting that somebody who uh, escaped from prison 17 times talked about living right. Uh, I, it's interesting to me because uh, Dave Zoll was talking this morning about seculosity and all the ways we try to uh, use external things to show you who we are and kind of maintain some sort of identity in the world. Uh, and I think this shows how not new a phenomenon that is. Uh, um, there's, in the sense of this whole song, us versus them, and not just a description, that's them, that's us, there's clearly a superiority. I mean, you're not going to see any Roman sandals or beads on us. We were boots as God intended. Uh, and um, and the, um, the examples of this are... Uh, Myriad. Uh, there's, there's, we're so good at defining the world into camps of people and putting ourselves in one and everybody else in other camps. Um, uh, hair and clothing is one that Merle talks about. Uh, there's also, uh, gosh, we, we are seemingly um, limitless in our ability to come up with ways to judge other people. People who take cruises judge those who don't. People who don't take cruises judge the heck out of those who do. Um, the, uh, the folks uh, who, uh, what kind of restaurants do you like to go to? Are you a white tablecloth kind of person? Are you the kind of person that wants three Michelin stars? Or the kind of person that wants a restaurant next to a Michelin dealer? Uh, the, and of course, and, and as Dave mentioned this morning, uh, politics. Politics is, seems to be the biggie today, um, uh, although um, I think we're just more aware of it now. People say we're never more divided. We've never been more divided. And I always want to say, Civil War. <laughs> 1860, remember? More divided, anyways. So, uh, but I do think there does seem to be this kind of... Uh, um, uh, hyperness about how you identify yourself. Maybe we've multiplied the ways you can categorize or identify and say there's that group and there's this group. Uh, uh, the um, uh, Dax Shepard, you know who he is? Yeah, Dax was on Parenthood, played uh, Crosby. Um, and uh, he uh, was on a podcast recently with comedian Pete Holmes talking about what he sees as this phenomenon of you have to be either all in or all out. You're either with me and you agree with me in my anti-vax views, or you're with me and you agree with me in my build-the-wall views, or you've got to be with me and you agree with me in having health care for all. 
whatever your political persuasion or your um, uh, belief system, you're either with me 100% or you're not. You're either all in or you're all out. And uh, we can't tolerate people that try to navigate the difference or be somewhere in the, in the middle. And this is, this is where I think this comes from. Um, we begin with this uh, situation where we have beliefs and we think that our beliefs are right and they, uh, and they sort of give us value. Our beliefs, I mean, you have beliefs, right? Um, and you, you either think that Journey is the best rock and roll band of all time or you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which, whichever at whichever uh, place you fall on that spectrum, you think you're right, and then you go. The next step to take. So I have my beliefs, and they're right. Um, I wouldn't have them if they weren't right. You then go to the next phase, which is to say, my beliefs are me. My beliefs are me. That defines me. Uh, and then the next thing you do, uh, the way you, if beliefs are right and my beliefs are me, then that takes us to. I am right. And it's just a, switch, a very quick little jump to I am righteous. Good timing there, slide guy. <laughs> so these beliefs that I hold kind of give me a sense of walking through the world and feeling superior to everybody else. You know, the term that we use now is to describe someone who is woke. And it's good to be woke. I mean, it's good to be aware. It's good to be aware of violence and oppression and systemic racism and all the evils in the world and to care about those things, yes. But the implication, there can be, not always, but there can be a little hint there of I'm awake and others are asleep and I'm enlightened and they are not. And behind that is a sense of I'm better than you. And, um, uh, and if you disagree with me, it's to attack me. And anybody who disagrees with me is therefore um, worthy of attack, villainization. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm then permitted to, to no longer see them as human beings. So um, uh, David Brooks is a writer that some of you may know. He, he writes for the, um, for the New York Times. He's their conservative columnist, one of their conservative columnists, which he uh, says is like being the, the rabbi at Mecca. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, David Brooks in the Times wrote this uh, last month. Hatred has become the defining emotion of our political life. I think he's right. Uh, he, he, he went on to quote some studies that 42% of people in each party regard the other party as, quote, downright evil. And nearly 20% of both Democrats and Republicans believe their political adversaries, quote, lack the traits to be considered fully human. They behave like animals. And roughly 20% uh, of Democrats, 16% of Republicans say that the world would be better off if large numbers of the other party died. Little 80s movie throwback here. Another John Cusack keeping with the theme of the conference. Uh, better off dead. <laughs> Apparently none of you have seen it. I thought this would kill, but not so much. I want my two dollars! Thank you. Good. Blessings. <laughs> right, that, so, I mean, a lot of people think the world would be better if the other party died. They want to be like Thanos, right? Put on the infinity glove and just kill half the universe. Right? That, that's his name, right? Am I getting that? Okay, just checking. 
If I just ruin that, uh, spoiler alert. Anyways, too late now. When you think that people that disagree with you should die, clearly there's something more going on here. This is not just a political conversation. This is why I think it's gotten to this level, and Dave is on to this, the seculosity thing. We've, our beliefs have determined my identity and my righteousness. It's justification by works. Uh, it used to be things we do, now it's what we believe. I, and it's not my belief in Jesus. I am right and righteous. Look at the bumper stickers on the back of my Prius or on the back of my F-150. And they'll tell you what I believe and who I am, and it means on some level I'm better than you. I've figured it out, and you haven't. Um, so, this is not a new problem. Uh, Romans 14 uh, was addressing this tendency of human beings in the world to divide the world into right and wrong and to put ourselves into categories and to think, um, think that the, the, the ones who are uh, wrong are really wrong and the ones who, me, I'm right, are really right. Uh, this passage is not always a fan favorite in the Bible. You may not have it on your bathroom mirror, you know, those sticky notes that you put there, memory verses. You may not have this up there, but, uh, but it's an important um, thing. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing, and I hope I offend at least half of you. Uh, it's about meat and idols. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome in the first century, and idols uh, were a big deal then, uh, and um, you, you did not have meat without it being involved in sacrifice to some sort of deity. Uh, there was not a slaughterhouse that then shrink-wrapped meat and sent it to your local uh, HEB or Sam's Warehouse or whatever, wherever you get your, your, your artisanal butcher. That also did not really exist. Any meat you had was sacrificed uh, to a deity. That's how you, um, you got your meat in the ancient world. Even if you killed the fatted calf at home, it would be offered, and the, as, as you killed that thing, it would be offered with the thought that it was being offered um, in sacrifice to, to a deity. So, uh, when you go to the, uh, to the store, um, this is what you're used to seeing. In Paul's day, it would look something like this, right? That's Zeus, right? Uh, we're pretty sure that's what he looked like. Um, Works out a lot, kind of a CrossFit guy. Uh, so uh, the deal here, when this is what your meat looked like, and you were uh, uh, now a Christian but had come from a Jewish background, you had a real problem buying meat that looked like that. Right? Because in participating in this meal, if you were to bite into your uh, burger, are you in some way participating or approving of uh, the worship of deities who are, who are not right? Um, now, maybe this doesn't connect. This feels a little abstract. But what if you went to H-E-B and this is what you saw? Mitch meat. Or, or Pelosi Porterhouse. Right? If, if, th if those two options were offered at your local uh, meat counter, you would probably choose one and not the other. I don't know which one, right? Are we uncomfortable yet? I hope so. I hope so. So this, I, what I want to get at here is just the way our politics today define our identity, the echo chamber that your social media puts you in, um, that's what was going on with how you ate your meat in the ancient world. 
Are you with Zeus or not? Are you with the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ or not? And how you eat your meat is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, indicate that. Now, there was some debate in the Christian community about this because there were some Christians that said, well, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. Through him we worship the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that's true. We know these idols aren't anything. Zeus isn't anything. And actually, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that God appears to St. Peter and lowers a sheet in front of him three times in a vision and presents to him every single creepy, crawly thing on the earth, all the non-kosher meat and double cheeseburgers you can imagine, and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, nuh-uh, no way, not me ever, I'm clean. And three times he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and thus declares all foods clean. So uh, there's one school of thought that says that, but then there were a bunch of other Christians, possibly who came more out of the Jewish tradition um, or, or held more closely to that, and said, no, it still says in God's word, though, that we're not supposed to eat any of those things. And just to be safe, I'm not going to do it. So there's a division in the church, a church fight. If you've ever been part of a church split, uh, you can know that you're in good company. It's been that way since the beginning. It is a Christian tradition. <laughs> so Paul writes, um, he, he's got to answer this question, who is right, Mitch meat or Pelosi meat, Zeus meat or no meat? And he says in verse 2 of chapter 14, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's sort of quoting them back to them. Many of you think that the weak ones, the ones with weak faith, the ones that don't really trust Jesus, that everything is clean, they're the ones that are just having uh, the salad bar. So who's right? And here's the thing. Most of us in this situation would have an answer. I'll tell you on Twitter who's right. Actually, why am I typing this? It's really more like this. So uh, this is, he, doesn't, he doesn't give the right answer. Interestingly, he says this in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. He says, it's not your job to judge them. It's actually not your job to have an opinion. Why not? Well, here's the kicker. Hit it, Mark. For God has welcomed him. It is not your job to judge the one who abstains or the one who eats because God has welcomed him. And are you going to reject someone whom God has welcomed? The reason you can't judge people who disagree with you and think you're better than them is because God loves them. Is that okay with you? As Steve Brown said last night. So that's the first thing Paul says, not your job to judge because God has welcomed them. The second thing he says is uh, this. Do you know what that is? That is a blooming onion. That is a gift of God. Somebody, it, I, don't, I don't think it's Australians. Australians go to Outback Steakhouse and they have no idea what that thing is. That's a purely American invention, folks. You take a huge onion, you slice it up into a, an amazing geometric pattern, and you fry the whole thing, and you bring it out onto the table, and you dip it in whatever that magical, mysterious sauce is in the middle, and you have a mystical experience, a blooming onion. The theme, the slogan for Outback Steakhouse for many years, maybe still is, no rules, just right. Crazy ethicists, those Outback Steakhouse people. What do you mean, no rules, just right? How is that possible? 
not good teaching there out back steakhouse. But look at what Paul says. So uh, in, uh, in this chapter, he's talking about not only is there disagreement about meat, there's disagreement about certain holy days. Should we observe them or not observe them? And how should we observe them or not? And he says, you know, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He doesn't pick a side. No rules. Just right. Just do it from a place where you are fully convinced of the fact that what you're doing is right. Now, I realize this opens a lot of crazy doors. There's uh, some of you here that are like, but what, what? I'm, that doesn't, I'm, that makes me nervous. <laughs> well, me too. Me too, folks. It's what he writes in, in the Bible. Uh, it goes against this whole, you know, there has to be right or wrong, and is this situational ethics, and are you saying there's not an absolute truth, and I don't know, but that's what he says. And this wasn't just some little thing, like maybe to us we don't think about eating food the same way, although we do think about eating food a lot, and we have strong moral opinions, as Dave talked about this morning, about it. But these things, if, even if that idle meat-eating thing seems like not a big deal or relevant to you, uh, I mean, this is the Bible they're talking about. These weren't just commandments they made up. This was stuff they could point to the Word of God and say, it says this. And Paul says, he opens up this door, this vagueness, this sort of freedom, which is deeply unsettling to most of us who want to know what's right and what's wrong, right? That's why your parents sent you to youth group. So that someone else would teach you what's right and what's wrong. So it doesn't mean here, I got to say here, that there isn't a right answer ever. And actually, Paul goes on to say this in uh, verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Actually, he, you know, Paul says with St. Peter, that whole thing that happened in Acts with the sheep being lowered and everything being declared clean, that is the right answer. So Paul acknowledges, at least in this situation, there is, there is a right. But he says that's not the main concern. And he goes on um, and says, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And, he go, and there's no slide for this, but the next thing he says, but by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, see them as a human being who is loved by God, not just an enemy who disagrees with you and threatens your righteousness based on your opinions and beliefs. The main idea here is love rooted in the fact that Jesus died for the sins of the people you hate on Twitter. If um, in, in, he's saying that on some level there's no person that's right. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and everyone is forgiven. So why do we then want to draw certain categories of belief, pattern, behavior, existence, where it is by works, where it is by believing the right thing and not the wrong thing? Um, uh, and... Uh, um, this kind of thinking will destroy a community. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's having an extremely um, uh, corrosive effect on our country. 
and in your own family and around your Thanksgiving table. So um, uh, this, in, this, in this community, um, uh, which is very much like our own, Paul says, again, just to kind of sum up here, uh, the ki- well, I'll let Paul to it. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Meaning, it's not about debating these issues where we like to pretend that there's a place here where we can define our identity that's not by grace, but by being right. Um, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you say, aha, he said righteousness. It is about being right, right? Folks, read the previous 12 chapters, 13 chapters of the book of Romans, and you will learn that Paul is not talking about a righteousness that you have earned by your good behavior. His whole point in the book is having an alien righteousness. That's what Luther called it, a righteousness from outside yourself, a righteousness that's given to you by grace. Wherever there's a place in your life where you feel like you don't need the blood of Jesus, to wash you, forgive you, cleanse you, that is the place where the law still dominates in your thinking. And for many of us today, we're taught that that's our political beliefs, that that's a place where you're right and you have no sin in your views. There's no need for humility. You could never possibly be wrong. And that's a place where I feel like that's a blind spot for a lot of people. Um, how many are offended yet? Okay, well, you're not going to raise your hand. Uh, but, uh, and uh, by the way, I think this is a bipartisan issue. I'm not picking on any one side. Um, you do feel, when you watch whichever, if you're on the left or the right, the people who are the talking heads on TV feel so assured and so right in their views. Um, there's a complete lack of humility. There's a complete lack of this kind of idea that Paul is talking about in Romans 14. So, Here's what I'm trying to say. Uh, your beliefs are not a zone where grace doesn't work or matter, where you have to have it right or else. Christ justifies you, not your beliefs, or what you wear, or whether you're an Okie from Muskogee, or a Prius-driving, Bay Area, sandal-wearing tech intern. <laughs> Do you know that Democrats can be just as saved as Republicans? I know, that was definitely a pearl-clutching moment. But do you know that Republicans can be just as saved as Democrats? Yeah, another pearl-clutcher. Do you know that people who uh, don't eat meat can be just as saved as carnivores? Do you know that uh, people who don't really do a good job of disciplining their children can also be saved? Do you know that millennials can be saved? Did you know that? It's for real. I know. I know. And millennials, did you know that baby boomers can be saved? They get in too. And the thing that I want to, this is the last thing I want to say for you. Uh, If there's a place um, where you feel like what David Brooks says is true for you, that hatred is the dominant emotion, Uh, instead of love, which is what you're called to do, there's probably a place in you where you have not allowed God's love to soften and to land and to do its work. 
Um, if you are out there policing other people's beliefs, uh, and it's not to say, again, that there aren't things that we should care about and things that matter, but when it goes to a place where you're unable to operate from a place of love for other people, there seems to be, for me, I think, maybe, try this on, a place where God's love hasn't, hasn't kind of sunk in for you. There's the, you've still carved out a place where grace is not, uh, doesn't work. And so um, I invite you to think about where is that place where you need to allow God's love to really land. And maybe I think Sarah can help us out here. Where do you need to be a child again? Because a lot of this posturing about politics, I think, and, these, and whatever else we're posturing about, I think it's often a defense mechanism. Let me build up a wall to protect myself against ever being hurt or ever dealing with the ways I've already been hurt. And so, um, and this may sound a little bit like I'm psychoanalyzing the American political scene, but I'm totally psychoanalyzing the American political scene. I mean, everybody needs to get into therapy, like yesterday. Because we're going to be like Elaine. So Elaine wants to get Ed out of her life. Just like you want to get the haters out of your life and the people you don't like out of your life and all that sort of stuff. At the end of the episode, um, Elaine is unable to get Ed to the airport in time. There's a traffic jam, and so she has to come back to Jerry's apartment. And as they're walking into the apartment, Ed gets into a fight with the busboy and falls down the stairs, breaking his back. And we find out Ed uh, then has to go live with Elaine as he recuperates. And she has to feed him by hand for the foreseeable future. She's not going to be free of the person she doesn't like for no reason. So whose guts do you hate? You know, this is the future of grace. Uh, the future of grace is that these people aren't going away. They're going to be with us, around your Thanksgiving table, in the pew next to you, cutting you off on the freeway. And the place for us, I think, to go into the future of grace is to come back again to Christ. All right, that's, that's the answer. So we're going to continue to be um, like this, Mark. I think we have a demonstration. <laughs> we're going to continue to be forced on, on the journey of our lives to share a hotel room with, with John Candy. Uh, but the good news is we have a, one who loves us all. And uh, that's all I want to say about that. Thank you very much.